Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. So here we are, three weeks into retreat for many of you, and just about a week in for some of you. It's really um, amazing to be on this side of the interview exchange, just seeing different people's processes. Each, Each person is different. I don't know if you, some of you might be old enough to remember there was, used to be a TV show when I was young called The Naked City, and it started out, there are eight million stories in The Naked City. This has been one of them. <laughs> and this is like The Naked City each, each day, um, five or six or eight or ten people, you know, just tuning in to such a unique reality. And some of you are going through intense openings either to the truth of suffering and learning about compassion in a in a profound way or opening to joy or bliss or spaciousness some others are just going through a kind of flat phase in their practice the not-much-happening period. There are different cycles of practice. And so, not to get caught into thinking, you know, oh, wow, when's my bliss going to come? You know, not much happening here now. I remember on one three-month retreat, I put a little note up for myself on my my bed, because I had gone through so many cycles, and each time it seemed like, Wow, it's really going now. You know, it would change, and then I'd say, "No, well, I don't know." And then that would change. I put up this little sign that said, um, "When the thought nothing's happening comes, watch out." <laughs> and then the second part, "When the thought it's happening comes, watch out," <clears throat> because it's. It's never going to be the same, and we can get fooled by our experience. Sometimes we get very inspired by practice, and other times we feel kind of blah. What am I doing here again? Why why did I sign up for this? I know a few days ago I remembered something that seemed to make sense. But even so, we still practice. Why? Why is that? It's important, I I think, to get in touch with why it is that we practice, how it is that we can keep on doing this very strange exercise, even when there's not a whole lot going on to inspire us. And it's helpful to stay connected to our emotional reason for practice so that there is 
a, a, a moistness to the practice. It doesn't go completely dry. When it's moist and juicy and we feel a connection in here to why we're practicing, then, as the man said, it's a path with heart. And so I want to talk about how this path is a path with heart, and particularly to um, have you remember the heart in your practice. Because when there is that wholehearted connection, then we can put our heart into practice. You know, it sounds a lot better than titling a path with mind or a path with head. You know, there's something about that quality of heart that brings a richness and aliveness to the practice. And when we can feel our motivation, our intention for practice, not only does it give us juice, but it also is a protection in those times that we feel vulnerable or doubting. Remember, um, a few years ago, I uh, was privileged to be part of a a conference with uh, the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala with uh, Western teachers. And uh, one day somebody asked him, you know, you see so much suffering around you. People come from hundreds and hundreds of miles with incredible tales of, of suffering. And it's even here as you, as you are in Dharamsala. How do you deal with all the suffering around you? And he hardly took a moment to respond. He said, uh, my sincere motivation is my protection. And then the next day, somebody asked, a different person asked, you know, you see so much fear. And he actually had mentioned that sometimes he gets frightened. And uh, it was asked, how do you work with, with fear? And he said, my sincere motivation is my protection. It was, it was really powerful for me hearing that same answer two days in a row. And it's been a, a source of great comfort and inspiration how that sincerity of motivation becomes your protection. Sometimes you don't have anything else going for you, but you can perhaps get in touch with that sincerity of heart that you bring to practice. And when you reflect back over the day, each day, as you get into bed, as you slip under the sheets, you know, that magical moment under the covers. And, ah. I think it's really skillful to reflect on your day and feel the sincerity of the effort that you've, that you've put into the day. Particularly when there's not much happening, that's quite amazing. Your sincere motivation, this is your protection. And sometimes that motivation has a, a, a passionate quality to it, and other times it's quieter and softer. So it doesn't always look the same. You know, it's not always with the jets and the flames on high. So there's, 
no one way for it to look like on the outside. And as, as we explore this, um, uh, this issue of motivation, and I share with you the various ways that it expresses, I really encourage you not to use it as one more way that the comparing or the judging mind creates problems. Because your sincere motivation is your protection. And not to compare it or how it looks like somebody else's or what you felt two days ago. But rather, as we explore it, to understand and and have a greater access to what touches you deeply and you can draw from it. Because we've all felt something deeply that's led us here and keeps us here. And just to inquire, what is this something? This is, I think, a valuable inquiry. What is this something that keeps us here? When we forget or lose touch with that something, then doubt and confusion and grasping and aversion, just trying to hold on, get some handle on practice, starts to, um, starts to emerge and create problems for us. Now, motivation or intention is different from goal or agenda or expectation. A quality of motivation skillfully used is is an opening, is an expansion. And there's no timetable as you get in touch with your motivation. When it becomes a kind of goal or expectation with a timetable, that is a movement of contracting in the heart or the mind and it creates a lot of problems. A number of years ago, it was actually on the way to that that same conference in in Dharamsala, I I stopped off, my plane was stopping off in Germany, and uh, uh, a number of my friends had gone to, uh, to visit Mother Mira. So they, they said, hey, you're going to be stopping in Germany. Why don't you check out Mother Mira, who, if you don't know, is this you know, uh, holy woman from India who uh, lives in Germany and very powerful presence. So I said, okay, sounds pretty good. You know, a few people have been very moved by her. And um, so I went, uh, I arranged it. I went a few, a few nights, uh, a couple of nights I was able to go. And what she does is um, she doesn't she doesn't talk. Uh, it's not like you get a Dharma talk, uh, but she's her vibes are so good that you know it doesn't feel like you've missed anything. And each person goes up <coughs> and sits in front of her, and you look into her eyes for a little while, and then you bow your your head, and then she kind of does something 
to you, unraveling your karmic knots or something like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, then you look in her eyes, and that's it. And the next person comes. And you, uh, you sit, each person goes in their own time. There's like a, there's the person who's going up, and then there's like a, the, in baseball we call it the on-deck circle, where you, you go up and you're about to go to the next person. And when the spirit moves you, you go. But I was told, when you go, um, you, uh, whatever you wish for, she has the power of granting you boons. So I thought, okay, far out. And I was looking at this and seeing each person gets about 45 seconds or so. So I said, all right, well, let's make it good. (laughs) So I I didn't go right away. Actually, I was one of the last people to go. What is it that I really wish for? What is it that I want? Hmm. Stuff? No, not really. Good friends? Yeah. Lots of nice things like that. But what is it if I could... It's like if the genie came to you and said, I'll grant you anything you want, you know, and if you don't tell me, you've got to just take your chances. You know. So tell me. It really helped me get clear in my mind what, what I wanted. And as I got clear and, and got focused that what I really wanted was um, a purity of heart, to be able to connect with that purity inside, and to thought of three things. 45 seconds, you have time for a few things. And to, to serve as best I can my, my family and friends and community and to serve the Dharma. And there was something amazing that happened in that 45 seconds as I, I just got to the very essence of what was important to me and being witnessed by her that those intentions have stayed with me the last seven years. I say them a number of times each day. As I, as I see people, as I just remind myself what's important to me, and they've been my protection. So it's very powerful for me getting in touch with this right intention or right aspiration, as it's also called in, uh, in the Eightfold Path. So getting clear on the intention then gives rise to a certain kind of energy that those intentions express through. And um, I wanted to share with you, as we, uh, we look at this topic, one list about the different ways that we manifest our, um, our purity or sincerity of heart as we practice. And it's a list that maybe some of you don't know. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's one of the it's one of the list of lists of thirty seven prerequisites for enlightenment, and a lot of them you know, like the seven factors of enlightenment and the eightfold path, and um, 
Four Noble Truths. And this is a, a lesser-known list, but it's a, it's a beautiful list if you're not familiar with it, called the, the Bases of Success, or the Bases of Power, um, called in the Pali the Idipadas. Idipadas. Idi, like the word Siddhi, you know, Siddhi is a, is a power. And Idipada, the basis of power, success. <clears throat> and what they describe are four different kinds of energy that can fuel our practice. And as I, I share it, you might see yourself in one or more than one. Maybe there's one that's predominantly your temperament, your style. And uh, we're, we all have different combinations of them. So not to think, you know, oh, well, I'm kind of this, but but also that. And actually, the idea is to cultivate all of them as a kind of richness for practice. But you'll see that there are different personalities that, that are stronger in one than another. <clears throat> They're all actually different expressions of a faith that we touch and develop. The first of the, uh, these is called chanda idipada. The word chanda means uh, zeal, zeal or enthusiasm. Just a, a kind of um, spirit of heart. Some people who are naturally passionate. <clears throat> Not everybody is naturally passionate, uh, at least expressing it outwardly, but some are and have real enthusiasm. And uh, this is one that I really connected with because um, by nature I, I have a very passionate side. And uh, I'm an Aries and I'm a, an intense sports nut. I'm not proud of it, but I'm not ashamed of it anymore. It's just the way it is. You know? I love to sing. I love music. I love to express myself. Competition, I've shared that already, my competition meditation. You know, I like to win. I like to celebrate. And for years, actually, I kind of, um, I felt that it wasn't very Buddhist-like to have that, uh, that quality. You know, they don't talk much about passion in the scriptures, except in not very pleasant ways. They talk about dispassion a lot. But actually, the Buddha himself was incredibly passionate. Can you imagine what kind of a, a heart that said, I will do this quest until I reach the end, or sitting under the tree, I will sit under there until I become enlightened or die. The great, great passion. And it, for me, there is this, uh, the expression of it is a kind of a childlike wonder. Like, wow, you know, just a kind of adventure. And it's a wonderful quality if you happen to, uh, to be of that temperament. There's a, a line from, uh, from William Blake, a great Buddhist. 
No, not really. <clears throat> but it's true. He says, those who enter the kingdom of heaven are not the ones who have no passions or who have curbed the passions, but rather those who have developed an understanding of them. Developing an understanding of them means to not let them sway you into grasping or confusion, but to actually use that passion in the service of awakening. And fortunately, I became very passionate about something that cooled me out. Then. And there is uh, most of most of my my colleagues. You know, it's it's great to sit with them because you can just feel that that fervor, that verve for practice. So this is this is one expression. Maybe you see it in yourself, maybe you don't. I remember um, going into one, uh, one interview on a three-month course that kind of uh, highlights this, this quality. And I went into, um, I don't think I told it in this, I might have told it in a small group. I went into um, uh, the interview with, uh, with Joseph and I had been practicing, this is my, my second three-month course and I've been practicing for a number of years five or six years by then. And it was like I, I opened up to a whole new... It was like I went through this trap door and I was like Alice in Wonderland. Right? And I said, I don't know what I've been doing for the last five years, but this is a whole, a whole, different, whole different experience in the ballgame. And he said, uh, oh yeah, I, I know that feeling. I said, oh you do? He said, yeah, I get it every time I sit. And then he leaned and he said, for me, it's like the tip of the iceberg. We're on the tip of the iceberg. And I, I remember that years later, more than 20 years later, just getting goosebumps. The tip of the iceberg. It's such, an, such a wonderful attitude, I find. Instead of thinking, oh gosh, there's so much more to know. You know, when will I ever get it together? You know, it's, Wow. There's so much more to know. There's so much more to discover. You know, what a treat. How exciting. When in your practice do you have that kind of enthusiasm or that, that childlike sense of, of wonder? It probably comes from time to time. And honor it and uh, appreciate and, and celebrate it. <clears throat> A second uh, idipada is called virya idipada. The word virya means energy. And what it means actually is practicing with a courageous heart that will not be deterred by any hardship. That is having a courage to be with, with pain, physical pain, or emotional pain. or It's not so much for the adventure of it, but for the, for the willingness to be there. The Buddha saying, whatever can be done by effort, I can do. 
And there's this line, let my skin fall off, let my sinews rot, let my bones turn to dust, let my flesh and blood dry up. Nothing will deter me from my goal. Pretty impressive, huh? <laughs> There's this one uh, one monk who uh, oh, I've I've read from Ajahn Sumedho, who was famous for his his virya idipada, uh, that nothing would deter him. And he, uh, when he was first practicing, he was in this uh, in this forest in Thailand. Uh, and he was in this hut, and there he discovered shortly uh, after he was there that there was a, a bee hive in the hut. He didn't move. He said, okay, it's me and the bees. Okay. And he would just sit there as the bees were on him, and they would sting him. And he'd sit through it. He became famous. That was the first, my first uh, hit of uh, Ajahn Sumedho. When I heard that story before I met him, I said, I want to meet this guy. Yeah. Just incredibly courageous. Now, we don't have to go overboard and become macho meditators and, and show how tough we are. But what we can do, what this attitude points to, which we all also have, is a quality of not being so controlled by our fear that we don't venture into new territory. Fear and learning to work with fear is a very uh, profound part of practice. Because if we can learn to relate to fear skillfully, it is the doorway to new territory. Fear is, is there's, the, there's the familiar and the known, and then there's the unknown. And between the known and the unknown will generally be fear, because it is about moving into the unknown. As Jack Cornfield, he has a great way of, of putting it. He says, fear is saying, about to grow. And if you can relate to that, ah, fear, I'm about to grow, you know, then it's not bad news. It's, fear is like the scout to, to new understandings. So it's not something to either run away from or feel that it's the enemy. Fear is not the enemy. As we learn more and more to just become friends with our fear and get to know it so well that it doesn't confuse us and we don't add a layer of fear on top of it, then we can relax right into that fear, just a little at a time. You don't have to slay the dragon, but even for just a little while, oh, here's fear, taking it for a minute or a couple of minutes at a time. Oh, yeah, that's what fear feels like, my heart pounding or my throat constricting. Oh, yeah. And then as you, as you open up to it and soften around it and get to know it well, after a while it doesn't confuse in the same way. And so 
this again comes back to our sincerity of heart because if we we think in terms of our energy or our effort is what's happening what we're what we're going through now and can we do it well then it becomes um, it just becomes a report card or a scorecard but if we think of it in terms of okay can I bring a sincere commitment a sincere willingness to to work with whatever is here ah then that quality of effort takes on a whole different tone because it comes from sincerity. This is uh, from Nisargadat. I am that. One of my favorite quotes is, he says, uh, your sincerity will guide you. Devotion to the goal of freedom and perfection will make you abandon all theories and systems and live by wisdom, intelligence, and active love. Whatever name you give it, will or steady purpose or one-pointedness of the mind, you come back to earnestness, sincerity, honesty. When you are sincere in this way, you bend every incident, every second of your life, to your purpose. And that gives you courage when you have that sincerity of heart. Okay, so there's chanda, zeal, and virya, energy or courage to, to meet whatever's here. The third one is called citta idipada. The word citta, C-I-T-T-A, is the word that means both heart and mind. Sometimes in, in Asia, people point to their here, their heart, and say, oh, yeah, my mind is, is heavy today. That's why we can call it a path with heart as well as a path with, with mind. <clears throat> That citta idipada really is pointing to the love that we have for the Dharma. When we've practiced and tasted the practice, then there's something very, very compelling about it. When we have seen for ourselves, we have this verified faith that I spoke uh, a few talks before about, then we've seen for ourselves what it's like to open up to the truth. It's like a, a moth being drawn to a flame sometimes. And it, it lets us have the feeling that everything else is kind of secondary to this. Everything else pales by comparison. This is a great poem by Kabir on this. He says... Uh, Friend, hope for the guest, the guest being the mystery, the unconditioned. Hope for the guest while you are alive. Jump into experience while you are alive. Think and think while you are alive. What you call salvation belongs to the time before death. If you don't break your ropes while you're alive, do you think ghosts will do it after? The idea that the soul will join with the ecstatic just because the body is rotten, that is all fantasy. 
What is found now is found then. If you find nothing now, you will simply end up with an apartment in the city of death. If you make love with the divine now, in the next life you will have the face of satisfied desire. So plunge into the truth. Find out who the real teacher is. Believe in the great sound. Kabir says, when the guest is being searched for, it is the intensity of the longing for the guest that does all the work. Look at me and you will see a slave of that intensity. Now this is a bit different, although it's, it, it has a similar quality to that first one, that enthusiasm, that chanda itipada, but this is, this is not so much a natural enthusiasm, this is just being drawn to the truth and being on, on, on fire with that. At times it feels like being on fire. At other times it can be a very quiet drawing into the truth. I was having a conversation with, with a retreatant uh, the other day. It was, it was really a very rich conversation. We were talking about how sometimes there's that, that feeling of real intense passion you know, where you feel the adrenaline going, oh yeah, and other times there's a kind of quiet, deep calm and opening and relaxed, deeply opening to the truth and letting our hearts be touched that way. So it doesn't look any particular way. Have you seen that in yourself? Have you been touched deeply by something? I'm sure you have. That, that keeps drawing you back. So, Punjaji, the teacher I, I mentioned in another talk, he says, uh, the desire for freedom is the most intense desire. All other desires are on the surface. They rise and fall, you see. The desire for freedom is intense and you must respond to it. When you respond, this desire will bring you back home. It will continue to trouble you if it is not fulfilled. This desire must be fulfilled whether you like it or not. And it's more a matter of us really listening it's not that we have to manufacture or go digging someplace or you know, read in some book. It's really listening inside and more and more hearing that call, hearing that longing. There's another um, Nisargadat, I am that quote. He says, um, I am now 74 years old and yet I feel that I am an infant I feel clearly that in spite of all the changes, I am a child. My guru told me, that child which is you, even now, is your real self. Go back to that state of your pure being, where I am is still in its purity, before it got contaminated with this I am or that I am. Your burden of false self-identifications, abandon them all. My guru told me, trust me, I tell you, you are divine. Take it as the absolute truth 
Your joy is divine. Your suffering is divine too. Remember it always. I did believe him and soon realized how wonderfully true and accurate were his words. What is it that reminds you? I was saying in, uh, to this friend the other day, the word purity is, is really what, what touches me. And I think of this sometimes as a process, a practice of purification, that every, every moment of mindfulness counts. Every moment I'm, I'm purifying habits of confusion and grasping and aversion. What is it for you that, that reminds you of that? That love of the Dharma. So, there's zeal and a courageous heart and that love, that attachment for the truth. And then the fourth one is what's called vimamsa idipada, or investigation. And what it means is um, seeing clearly the situation that we're in and feeling a sense of um, urgency to make the most use of this time, because this is an incredibly precious opportunity that we have. The Buddha talked about investigating and seeing what our situation is. And and he said, as you focus on the way things are, you're going to be motivated. There's there's what are called the four mind changers. In uh, the Tibetan practices, this is cultivated over and over. And it's also in the Theravadan teachings, the four mind changers to see what the truth is. And the first one is the preciousness of human birth. It's pretty amazing that we have ended up in this form. The the image, the classical image is, uh, it's rarer to be born human than it is for a blind turtle to surface every hundred years and poke its head through through a yoke on the surface of the water. You know, when I first thought of that, I thought, wow, you know, that might be stretching it. But when you think of all the possibilities of being born and coming into existence, it's mind-blowing. One of my uh, favorite pieces of, of information was from an article uh, that, that Wes Nisker wrote a couple of issues of Inquiring Mind back where he, he came across this fact that there are more organisms in our mouth than there have been human beings since the beginning of time. Check that one out. (laughs) Pretty mind-blowing, huh? 
hey, a turtle every hundred years, no big deal. And there's a lot of mouths here. Uh, and there's six billion mouths right now. Here's another one that I came across. This is from uh, Lewis Thomas, The Lives of a Cell. He says, statistically, the probability that any one of us being here, the probability of any one of us being here is so small that you'd think the mere fact of existing would keep us all in a contented dazzlement of surprise. (laughs) We are alive against the stupendous odds of genetics, infinitely outnumbered by all the alternates who might have, except for luck, be in our places. Even more astounding is our statistical improbability in physical terms. The normal, predictable state of matter throughout the universe is randomness, a relaxed sort of equilibrium with atoms and their particles scattered around in an amorphous muddle. We, in brilliant contrast, are completely organized structures, squirming with information at every covalent bond. We make our living by catching electrons at the moment of their excitement by solar photons, swiping the energy released at the instant of each jump and storing it up in intricate loops for ourselves. We violate probability by our nature. To be able to do this systematically and in such wild varieties of form, from viruses to whales, is extremely unlikely. To have sustained the effort successfully for the several billion years of our existence without drifting back into randomness is nearly a mathematical impossibility. Add to this the biological improbability that makes each member of our own species unique. Every one is one in, now it's six billion, it was three billion when this was written. Every one is one in six billion at the moment, which describes the odds. Each of us is a self-contained, freestanding individual labeled by specific protein configurations at the surfaces of cells, identifiable by whirls of fingertip skin, maybe even by special medleys of fragrance, you'd think we'd never stop dancing. And the amazing gift of a human birth is that we have it seems the optimal situation for knowing who we really are. Maybe, maybe it's so that an ant can know what it really is. You know, I don't know. But there's something about the consciousness that we possess that's truly extraordinary, that seems unique, perhaps with the exceptions of dolphins and whales and, and those higher order of beings, at least on this planet, that can know itself, self-reflexive awareness. And given that, that we have a precious human birth, the odds on top of that, that we have been fortunate enough to hear the Dharma, and even on top of that, that we have 
the inclination and the opportunity to practice the Dharma, how did that happen? Huh? I don't know, but it seems like a pretty good opportunity. So just to reflect on that, it really can inspire you to make the most of, of this gift. Another reflection is that on, on impermanence and death. And just seeing life is very, very short. I don't know about you, but you know, for me, Third grade was not so long ago, if I think about it, you know, being in Mrs. Luke's class, you know, there, just, it just goes by very quickly. You know that John, Lin- John Lennon line says, uh, uh, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. To not be so busy making other plans and to see, oh, this happens so quickly, let's really make use of this opportunity. The Buddha talked about it as if we're children playing in the attic of a house, playing with our toys while the house is burning and we have no idea. And we're just having a good time and fun. That'll get you to a mode of urgency. Impermanence and death. So to, to really come into freedom in this in this life, or to discover as best we can what it's about, that leads us in a whole other direction in our journey. A third reflection, a third of these mind changers, is um, reflecting on the shortcomings of samsara. And that is having an understanding that happiness is not to be found in getting as much as we can, as quickly as we can, that actually all that leads to is more and more suffering, as I'm sure you've all seen throughout your life, if not just these days. Oh, the next meditation, I hope it's a good one. And there you are causing suffering for yourself. That there's a shortcoming of samsara as we get seduced by all the, the wonderful things there are. There's shortcomings of samsara because there is suffering. There is old age, there is sickness, there is death, there is pain, there is grief, there is loss, all of these things. and to see that there is a greater happiness to be had. And if you relate to more than one realm, this is the human realm, there's the animal realm, and then there are many other realms, hell realms, hungry ghost realms, you know, whether or not you believe in it is, is not so important. As Manindra, Joseph's teacher and, and a teacher of mine said, you know, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, it's true, but it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. There's just vast possibilities in this universe. And this human birth is the optimal one to see through the samsara because it has the right combination of pleasure and pain. 
and there are shortcomings in trying to maximize the pleasure and minimize the pain. Not that it's not a natural thing to do, but to see that there's a deeper kind of happiness. And then the, the fourth of the mind changers is karma, understanding karma to some extent. You know, it's impossible to understand it in its uh, completeness. The Buddha called it one of the things that would drive you crazy if you tried to understand the imponderable law of karma. But to understand it even in a, in a simple way that there's cause that has effect, as it's said in the scriptures, because of this, this arises. And to see that in every moment we are planting the seeds for future results. And if we act in this moment with grasping or aversion or delusion, confusion, we are sowing the seeds for pain and suffering. If we act, as I think this was just said in the last uh, day or so, uh, if we act with non-greed or generosity, non-hatred or kindness, non-delusion or clarity, we are sowing the seeds for happiness. So that's a, a very good motivator to you know, clean up your act and just do things, not because you want to be a goody-goody and have everybody tell you how wonderful you are, but even on a pragmatic level, oh, I have a choice whether I'm creating happiness or suffering for myself. So this last one, this vamamsa, as you investigate and, and get a sense of urgency, it's a tricky one because it can lead to a kind of fear-based motivation. And so uh, I, I say it uh, as, a, as an offering for you to reflect on but not get so swamped by you know, doing the wrong thing because we have enough conditioning about that about, uh-oh, if I don't make use of this, I'll be stuck for eons on the wheel of samsara, and you know, then I'm really going to be in a mess. And as you get more contracted and confused, you know, forget it. Your motivation for practice has just withered up and dried. But rather, to use it as, as a motivation to really make the best use of the gifts and the opportunity that you have, and to find other ways besides that inspire you, that can connect you with your love of the Dharma or with the courage of heart that you get from, uh, from practice. So maybe you see yourself in one or another of these, these itties. Or maybe you see a combination. Or maybe you don't see it quite as much, but somehow there's something that keeps you coming back and sitting on the cushion. You don't have to file yourself away in any particular list. There's something in you that has kept you coming back every time that bell rings, or most of the times the bell rings. You're still here, that's the main thing. The most profound motivation for practice comes when we 
we truly see what Sylvia was talking about last night, that notion of anatta, when we really see that we're all interconnected, that there is not this illusion of separate self on the relative reality that is so, but on an ultimate reality there is not that barrier or distinction. And when we see that we're not separate, then we practice not just for our own happiness, for our own liberation, but because that is a a gift that this aspect of life can give to help free others. We're all in this together. This is called the bodhisattva ideal, as I'm sure many of you know. And it, 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 can, it can be a tremendous inspiration and source of motivation for practice. This is uh, Nyoshal Kempo, a great Tibetan teacher. He says, We're not practicing for ourselves alone, since everybody is involved and included in the great scope of our prayers and meditations on this perfectly pure motivation. The natural outflow of so-called solitary meditation or prayer is spontaneous benefit for others. It's like the rays of the sun, rays which spontaneously reach out. This good heart, pure heart, vast and open mind, this is innate bodhicitta. We talk about vast and profound teachings of Dharma, such as Dzogchen, but without this goodness of heart, this unselfishness, it is mere chatter, gossip, and rationalization. The very heart essence of Buddha Dharma is to benefit others, bodhicitta. Whatever else we might do is secondary to that. And if we cultivate this good heart, this altruistic, unselfish attitude, then all strife and struggle will naturally be pacified, purified, transformed, and even become beneficial to others through contact with that good heart which we strive to embody. So, it's important to remember and remind ourselves of that genuine place of goodness of heart and that connection can be alive with our practice. It's not just an exercise to see if you can lift your foot and know that you're lifting it, or breathe and know that it's an in-breath or an out-breath. But it's it's a way to actualize that call that we've all heard. And that's what makes it a path with heart. Let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for your attention. This talk was given by James Barris at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 25, 2000. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive.